This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at Upcase.com. Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots. Hi, and welcome to Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots. I'm Chad Pytel, filling in for Ben Orenstein, who's on his walkabout. And today, I'm joined by Allison House. Allison, hi. Hi. Good to be here. So... On your website, you have a picture of you with Nancy Cartwright, the voice of Bart Simpson, outside of <laughs> Apple's headquarters. There has to be an interesting story there. What, what is it? Oh, gosh. Well, right before I was moving to New York City, this was to work at Code Academy. I was living in San Francisco, and I was taking some time out to visit friends who worked in the South Bay. And one of those locations that I visited was Apple. Uh, It was my first time there. It was an amazing experience. And as I was leaving, I was sitting on the bench looking through my camera, photos I had taken that day. And a group came up to me and asked if I could take a photo for them. So I took a photo using their camera. And then Nancy Cartwright came up to me. I I hadn't even realized she was part of the group. And she put on the Bart voice, put out her hand and said, hi, I'm Bart. (laughs) And I looked up at her and I didn't realize who she was. I thought it was just some sort of gag. And her friends around her said, oh, she doesn't get it. She doesn't understand. And then it clicked. And I went, wait a minute, from The Simpsons? (laughs) (laughs) So we decided to take another photo of me and her. It was a really, really unusual experience. But that's the story. That's that's refreshing. I have this idea that celebrities or people who, you know, are known for one thing, don't necessarily like to, you know, just approach someone who doesn't know them and say, I'm Bart. Uh, yeah. So it's refreshing to know that she sort of owns it. And, you know, she's obviously been doing it for a long time. Yeah. And that was really neat that you got to meet her. So such an odd coincidence outside of Very Apple. odd, yeah. So you mentioned that that was right before you moved to New York to uh, join Code Academy. Mm-hmm. And you're back in New York now. You've you've bounced between San Francisco and New York. Have you lived other places, too? I went to school in Florida. So Mm -hmm. that was where I was right before the first time I moved to San Francisco. So how many times have you moved to San Francisco? (laughs) In total, just two. And then New York twice now. Okay. And you were employee number two at Code Academy. How did Mm -hmm. you find out about Code Academy? How did you become employee number two there? Code Academy was interesting. I had been looking for a new job for a while. So I had left Carsonified slash Treehouse maybe a couple months before um, and was getting to know San Francisco at the time. I was just getting to know the city and keeping an eye out. It seemed like there were a lot of opportunities out there. So I was talking to various companies. And at some point, um, Ben Blykamp, who's a, a designer at GitHub, mm-hmm. sent over this job description for Code Academy, and he said, he, so he calls me bouncy, as in Allison Bouncy House, because <laughs> I tend to be very energetic and bouncing off the walls. Um, he sent, sent over this description, and he said, bouncy, this looks like it's, it's perfect for you. Like, this is, you know, you love education. Um, I taught introductory computer science courses for three years. I previously worked at Treehouse, uh, which is also sort of a merging of the tech and education loves. Uh, he said this sounds like it'd be a great fit for you. So I you know, took a closer look at it and I thought, hey, why not? I'll give it a shot. So I reached out to Zach and Ryan, who are the co-founders of Code Academy. We had a discussion on Skype and it turned out it was a great fit. I mean, they were people I instantly got along with uh, and we sort of went from there. So you mentioned that you were at Treehouse Carsonified. Y- you were team member three there, 
or employee yeah. three there. So that's another company where you were very early on. Were you at Carsonified before it launched Treehouse? Yes. So when I joined Carsonified, they had sort of a flagship product, I guess, called uh, Think Vitamin Membership, which mm -hmm. was a spinoff of their blog, Think Vitamin. And it was a way for them to test the waters and see if anyone was interested in some sort of online education product that was based around video tutorials addressing design and development, which was otherwise their specialty. Right. Um, for anyone who's not familiar with Carsonified, they also put on a lot of big uh, shows, uh, conferences back in the day, uh, like Future of Web Design and Future of Web Apps before mm -hmm. they that was eventually turned into Future Insights Live. Um, so that was sort of their area of specialty. They tried out this product and it ended up gaining a lot of traction. So I was brought on when they were still Carsonified, transitioning into Treehouse and was part of the, the rebrand and initial push into building that product into what it is today. Mm -hmm. Did you know Ryan before that? I didn't know Ryan at all. Mm -hmm. um, I knew the first two employees a little bit from the local community in Orlando, Florida. Uh, this is Jim and Nick. Right. Uh, they were employees one and two, so they encouraged me to apply. I really didn't think I could get the job. I thought it was way out of my league. And a friend of mine who I had worked with previously had applied for the job. And when he did that, I, I realized, wait, I can do as good as this guy can. Mm -hmm. uh, he had sort of put together a website that was a mix of a portfolio and a description of why he was good for the job. And that was what Carsonified was looking for. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to show this guy up. <laughs> <laughs> I, a little bit of a competitive streak came out in me. I still didn't think I was going to get the gig. It seemed like, you know, no way. But I ended up putting together something similar, sort of a mini portfolio um, and a, a hello, a way to introduce myself to Ryan Carson and the team. Uh, and I also connected with Nick and Jim and said, hey, I'm applying. You know, odds don't seem good, but I just wanted to let you know this is coming up. Um, but they really supported me and encouraged me. And I was in shock when Ryan Carson emailed me back and said, hey, you seem like a great fit for this. Yeah. Um, so certainly a lot to be said for just throwing your hat in the ring sometimes. Now, did you work remotely from San Francisco on Treehouse or did you go to Florida? Uh, so initially I was in Florida, in Florida, which is where that first sort of video mm -hmm. studio was started. Mm -hmm. And then because I was working remotely, they were ba based in uh, Bath, UK at the right. time. Uh, now I think headquartered in Portland. But because I was working remotely, I wanted to try out a new city. I had gone to school in Florida. I had lived there a long time and thought that uh, maybe there was another city that might be a better fit for mm -hmm. me. And so you went to San Francisco and, and then joined Code Academy. And then after that, you joined Dropbox. Then I joined Dropbox, yep. <laughs> and you were the fourth person there, or were you the fourth employee? The, sorry, the fourth designer. The fourth designer. Yeah. Really early on at Dropbox. So how did you get that opportunity? <laughs> I mean, at that, well, so when I left Code Academy, I think one thing I realized about immediately jumping into these lead designer roles, being the solo designer, sort of building that team from the ground up, was that it was hard to grow my own skill set as rapidly as I would have liked. Mm -hmm. I felt like I had sort of hit the ceiling in terms of what I could learn on my own uh, and from the people around me. And I mm -hmm. wanted to join a team that had, you know, was looking for top talent, people around me who would encourage me to become a better designer. So, you know, I spent some time looking at, at different companies uh, and my friend Morgan Canoe who was um, hired just previous to me at Dropbox, talked to me about the company. We got on a Skype call and he uh, 
he got on his skateboard, held his laptop in his hand, and he he rolled around the office <laughs> and showed me what Dropbox HQ was like. And, you know, I asked a couple people for advice, and a lot of folks pointed me in that direction. They, they said, you know, it sounds like the type of company you're looking for is Dropbox, something that's growing very quickly, um, has a team that can teach you something new. So uh, I started that conversation with Morgan. He, he was somebody I had already known from the design community. We had been friends for a few years at that point. Probably met on Dribble, if I recall correctly, mm-hmm. and eventually Twitter and then in real life at some point. So our friendship grew from there. But he was the one who brought me on board, shepherded me through the interview process, uh, and eventually I was at Dropbox. So you clearly have a track record of being an early member of Teams. (laughs) How intentional was that? I don't think it was particularly intentional. I don't think I deliberately said, hey, I want to work in startups. I want to be employee number two or three. But I, I try to find missions that speak to me. And I think that tech and education was something that was just getting started in mm-hmm. terms of online offerings just a few years ago. So those were the types of companies that could facilitate sort of my, my personal vision and, and, and pursuing my personal vision at that time. So you started with just a few people on each team at those mm-hmm. companies. But what size were the teams when you left? Code Academy, let's see, I think was, so I started out, of course, with just a couple people. And I think by the time I left, it was maybe 11 or 12 mm-hmm. employees. So in terms of sheer percentage, uh, quite a significant increase. But I think that's typical for over the course of a year or so for an early stage startup. Carsonified, I think we had hired maybe four or five people, um, some teachers and, and video folks. Uh, but Dropbox is the one that uh, had probably increased the most. When I joined, we were about 150 in terms of total size of mm-hmm. the company. And then when, by the time I left, I think we were over 300. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, there are various acquisitions and stuff that contributed to that. But right. we were hiring really, really quickly. It's probably and the, the design team in general grew a lot too during that time. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, so four people when I joined and maybe 12 folks, 12 mm-hmm. to 14 people when I left, it had grown quite a bit. We uh, we would do these daily design critiques. One of my absolute favorite parts of being on the design team at Dropbox was um, the frequency with which we could get feedback from each other. Just nothing like getting another pair of eyes on what you're working on and, and hearing what they think and what they assume about what you've created. So we started out in just one conference room, but it quickly started to fill up with mm-hmm. more and more people until it felt like a you know a big conference, like a, a meeting was going on in there. So I understand they've sort of broken out those design critiques now, but it started a lot of voices started to echo in those rooms. Yeah. So at Dropbox, you started Origins. Uh, Can you tell me about that? Sure. Um, So Origins was an event to bring together women who were working at the intersection of design and technology and to also tell their stories. The name Origins comes from the concept of an origin story. And I think that everybody gets into tech in sort of a strange and twisted way. Uh, You know, there's often a, a, a curvy path to get us here, but in particular people from marginalized groups because they may not have the sort of built in support system. Um, often have a very interesting story to uh, accompany 
their entry into tech and design. So I wanted to specifically give women a platform to talk about that. And I think also to bring in that design component. We see a lot of women in tech events, but not so many that uh, they're often for engineers. So there are fewer that include design and so recognize design as being a really important part of technology in general. Did Origins continue after you left Dropbox? Yes. Yeah. That's great. Was that something that you worried about when you were leaving? Yeah, absolutely. I felt like Origins was a unique event. And of course, I funneled a lot of uh, heart and spirit into the event as well. So I was glad to leave it behind with Alice Lee, who's a very good friend of mine and uh, now a former Dropbox employee. She was a a product designer there. Um, So she kind of helped me take it over. Mm -hmm. After Dropbox, did you jump right into freelancing? I did. Yeah, I, I kind of got right back to it. Um, mm-hmm. I worked with, uh, I was really lucky because right after I left, I put on my hiring flag on Dribble. So I said, hey, I'm available for hire. And I usually don't get a lot of good cold emails. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're often riddled with grammatical errors or sound a little bit shady. Uh, I usually don't pursue those. Um, but I got this I got this one email from a guy who wanted to build a childcare app. And something about it really spoke to me. He seemed very passionate about it. He was very articulate. And he also seemed to understand the process a little bit already. Design wasn't completely foreign to him. He had some idea of what he wanted and what the project would look like. So I reached out to him. I followed up with him. And uh, it turned out that in terms of personality, we were just a very good match. And he wanted somebody to build this product with him from the ground up. So his name is Vincent Lin. He's uh, formerly he was at Google, and the app is called Tot Report, and it's still uh, being developed. But he and I spent, oh, I don't know, maybe seven, eight months working together, designing the product from mm-hmm. the ground up. It was a really incredible experience. I learned a lot about about childcare actually, <laughs> um, and about how the brain works, and about about how um, brain development works at a young age. That's really interesting. Was that what you expected? to have happen once you decided to leave Dropbox and go into freelancing was to work on something, one thing for so long? I don't think that's what I expected. Mm -hmm. I think that I anticipated I would do more snipe jobs where Mm -hmm. I was working on smaller things in rapid succession. But at the same time, there's something nice about steady work and Mm -hmm. and chewing on a problem for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. And I also just loved working with this person. It was, you know, such an enjoyable professional relationship. So I was grateful that we had a lot to do. It ended up being a multi-platform product. So I designed things out for both iPhone, iPad, and then also an entire app for the web as well. Uh, So there was quite a bit of front end development involved. um, So that's part of why the project (laughs) took so long. But, you know, with every every change in scope, every time it sort of gradually increased and got bigger and bigger. And, you know, there was a part of me that was like, oh, this is going on longer. But I think a part of me that was also grateful that I had the chance to to work Mm -hmm. with somebody Mm -hmm. that I enjoyed working with so much for a longer period of time. If learning new things and getting better at what you do is so important to you, was there a risk that that wasn't going to happen if you were freelancing? Uh, Well, when I'm freelancing, I have full control of my schedule. Uh (laughs) So that really made the difference for me. There's something about getting up in the morning, you got to do your makeup and your hair and, well, for a gal, right? So, you know, there's a sort of a lot of effort in the morning and then you, you go to work and there's the ride to work and then 
actual work and then the ride back, you know, there's all of that. I don't know. All of that takes a lot out of me. I think, Mm -hmm. um, not so much that I can't get my job done, but enough that it's really hard to do more work after work. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So when I was able to work from home, we would communicate almost every day, but through, uh, Google hangouts, I found the time to explore other things that I was interested in. Um, 3d probably being the most significant of those for me. Uh, so I, I do this thing I call second shift, which is a dedicated amount of time that has three sort of important qualities. Um, one is that it is chained on another activity so I so that I consistently do it. So at the end of every single work day, I would start second shift. I, de- I also have to identify an achievable amount of work that I can do in that period of time. So it could be, uh, okay, in 15 minutes, I will make a GIF. And that is something I can do within that span. And then I have to make a project that sort of generates energy, something that has an emotional component, something that makes me want to do more. So this is sort of like the the foundation of how I started doing these sessions regularly and was able to produce a ton of work outside my regular day job. I love this. This is right up my alley. It sounds like it's very intentional. You've approached it in a very intentional way. Did it start off that way when you got started with this concept of second shift? Was it like, I'm going to do this and here's how it's going to work? Or did it evolve? I think it evolves. I think for me, another really important part of productivity is momentum. It's one thing to produce exceptional work, but to produce it with consistency really helps you build. Uh, and I you know, ran into some really great opportunities this year because I was producing work rapidly and consistently at the same time. Um, but the notion of chaining events, of tacking them onto other events that you do regularly actually came out of B.J. Fogg's playbook. Uh, he is a behavior change specialist and the author of a book called Tiny habits where you tack on something that you want to do more of. So for example, if I want to exercise more, uh, you tack it onto something else that you do often. Um, So it might be every morning I brush my teeth and immediately after that I do two jumping jacks. Mm -hmm. Keep it really, really small and achievable. And then maybe it becomes three and four. Maybe you start integrating it into your life in other ways. But he talks about starting with just this sort of one really tiny achievable thing. You mentioned 3D. So yes. that was something that started in second shift then? It is. Is your work and learning there? Yeah, I started to get this sense earlier this year, probably over the summer, that there wasn't quite as much narrative and, and story and, I don't know, human spirit in the work that I was producing. Mm-hmm. I like doing product, but at the same time, I also like art and I like things that, that sort of have a clear passion behind them. And I looked at my work and I wondered, I wondered if that was me. <laughs> I, I love watching MasterChef. And uh, <laughs> me Gordon, Gordon Ramsay, you, you ever hear Gordon Ramsay, he'll, uh, he'll kind of toss the plate back at somebody and say, is this you on a plate? Yep. And the person feels sort of sh- ashamed. And I, was, I would watch that and feel a little ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> I would project my shame onto the TV show. I would think, oh, wait, I don't know if I'm producing me on a plate. <laughs> Yeah, And I watched, oh gosh, what was that Matthew McConaughey show? True Detective. Yep. I watched True Detective and like the, the level of narrative command just blew mm-hmm. me away. And I, so I started to, to realize maybe this is what I'm missing. There's this piece that's missing for me in terms of, in terms of just my work in general. 
So I started to do small things. I tried to make a typeface. I tried to paint more or sketch more. I just tried to explore things that might lead to more, might mm-hmm. lead to me tapping into that feeling. So uh, I did a lot of abstract painting. It seemed like such a great place to start, something that would, uh, you know, is sort of mindless but inherently creative. So I did a lot of abstracts. Gosh, what else did I do? I learned more JavaScript so that I could do some more creative coding type stuff. But eventually, I, I on a whim, you know, as part of a series of art-related uh, experiments, I tried 3D. I downloaded a demo of Cinema 4D, and I started a tutorial, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. One of the best feelings I've ever had. Like the first time you write HTML or CSS or whatever, and you see it work, that I had that feeling, that complete thrill, that mm-hmm. like your your heart is just like something about it feels like it was made for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that might sound a little dramatic, <laughs> but it was incredible. It was just an incredible feeling, and I, I realized that's it. That's it. That's what I was missing this whole time. This is what I've slowly been growing away from is that one feeling. So I chased it down pretty hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, second shift was my way of doing that where I said, okay, I'm going to start you know, I said, okay, gifts, bite-sized, achievable. I'm going to do a lot of gifts. So I started getting into you know, being a GIF artist using Cinema 4D. So I just made tons of gifts over the summer. People started to see my work. And one of those people was Spencer Tweedy, who uh, is the son of Jeff Tweedy. And they are now um, together in a band called Tweedy. Mm-hmm. And for anyone who doesn't know, Jeff Tweedy is the uh, legendary frontman of Wilco. So this all sort of came to a head for me in doing a music video for them. Is that just literally like you get an email out of the blue saying, hi, this is what we're doing and we'd, <laughs> we'd like to talk to you about doing a, a music video for us? So Spencer's someone I have uh, known as an acquaintance for a while. Okay. Maybe, yeah, it wasn't completely out of the blue. But gosh, he must have been young, probably when he was 15 or so. I, I think I met him on Tumblr or, or maybe it was Twitter or something like that. But he was curious about the design community at the time. And I think um, starting to do some of his own mock-ups and, and just exploring that space. So I met him that way. Never knew him too well, but, you know, we mm-hmm. talked here and there. So I think he had seen the amount of work I was producing, liked what I was producing, and it it led to him asking. But it all started from you doing these explorations and deciding that you just do a tutorial and and get a book or, or download some software and do a tutorial. Yeah. And I think a lot of people get hung up at that point. Yeah. Getting started, right? It's really tough. Right. And, you know, they'll, they'll go off and they'll feel like there's just this ocean of, especially, you know, I don't, I'm not a 3D person, but I know or have the perception that there's just an, an immense amount of a material out there, uh, an immense learning curve. Um, and, I, and I feel like some people may never get past that first step. Is there something about you or about your approach that gets you past that? Yeah. So I tend to take a sort of a similar approach to a lot of things, whether it's, um, I don't know, speed painting or learning a new skill. And I quantify it this way. Go wide, get a lay of the land, try to understand things from a foundational perspective, understand what the possibilities are, prioritize 
So you say, okay, there are, you know, 18 possible skills that I can learn in this realm, 18 points of interest, and then go deep on the thing that is going to give you the most immediate impact. So it's go wide, prioritize, go deep. That's how I think about it. Those are good tips. <laughs> you have a newsletter on your website or an email sign up, I should say, where you share some more tips about getting a design job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll link that in the show notes at giantrobots.fm slash 121. Good number. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what's your strongest piece of advice to people who want to get a design job at a leading tech company? Oh, this one's easy. Prolificness. So mm-hmm. I, I first heard about this concept from Saleo, who is my former manager at Dropbox slash mentor, perhaps. Uh, I learned a lot from him about what top tier technology companies are looking for in people who maybe don't have that much experience, who are um, just getting into the industry or maybe transitioning into the industry. Uh, And he made a very good point that those who produce a lot of work in a short period of time, especially students, tend to be a good bet for somebody to interview. And I say especially for students because when you go through school, let's say you went through a design program, um, you're often given assignments on a deadline. So let's say that once, let's say over the course of a semester, you deliver four major projects. But people who are really exceptional and very curious, curious enough to keep learning on their own and to have a sort of explosive trajectory don't stick to the rules. They don't just do those four pieces. They do far more beyond that or they expand those projects far more than they needed to. They you know, add additional features or, or spent the time to really focus in on details. So something that I look for and designers who have a lot of potential is how much work they produce, prolificness, the capacity to learn and to grow. So you've clearly done that, right? It was with the 3D work, you were prolific. And that land that ended up getting you the opportunity to make a music video. But it seems like just the second shift in general is a mechanism that you have built into your work strategy. Absolutely, yeah. For being prolific. Yeah, I think so. So I, I think I like something like speed painting as being uh, having a lot of parallels with something like building a product. What is where, speed painting? Wait, what, what oh, is speed so, painting? Uh, speed painting, it's where you put yourself on a timer and you have to paint something within, say, 20 minutes. So um, I'm going to paint a, a portrait of Chad within 20 minutes and then I'm off, right? Wow. But in order to do that, I cannot just, you know, start with the eyes or start with the nose. I have to first get a lay of the land. I have to lay down a foundation for my, you know, maybe what's the background color look like. I have to rough out the face. I have to, you know, here's roughly where the eyes go and the nose go and the, and the mouth might go. And then I have to look at that and I have to prioritize. I have to say, what? I only have 20 minutes. If I don't get something done, I have to, I have to pick the thing that has the highest impact, right, that contributes the most to what I'm creating probably the eyes on a face. It's almost always the eyes or maybe the nose, but I think eyes, you start first. If you, if you get stuck and you have to stop at the eyes, it's enough, right? The eyes are the MVP of the face. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm dead serious. So you start with the eyes. Okay. Probably next is eyebrows, nose. Yeah. You're going down to the mouth, right? But you do it in order of, um, what's going to have the highest impact on the person who's viewing your art. Then you can kind of rough out the hair. I usually end up just broad brush strokes for the hair, really quick background, because by that point, I'm running out of time. Mm-hmm. But building a product is very similar. We have to determine, okay, what, do we, what problem are we trying to solve here? We get a lay of the land. 
And then we can prioritize by features. What is the minimum thing that I need to include here to make this a, something that is solving the problem that I set out? Then we prioritize and we can deep dive from there. Mm-hmm. Do you share your speed painting work? I do. I do. I have it on Tumblr and on Drivel. So it seems like you share almost everything, everything. that you're yep. creating. And that's an important component, right? If, if this is your recommendation to people getting started or trying to get a job is to be prolific, it means you do have to share it. Otherwise, it's like you didn't even create it. Yeah, I guess that's true. Do you ever hesitate or are there things you hold back? Yes. Oh, yes. I have shared work and felt my face flush out of embarrassment. <laughs> Um, But I think that there is something positive to be found in that feeling where you want to replace that work as quickly as possible. Uh, Maybe it's not your best work. Maybe there's maybe you think it won't resonate with people, but you can do more work tomorrow and the day after and the day after. And maybe in a week, no one will remember that you posted that thing you weren't that proud of. Um, If you're prolific enough, you'll bury the previous work. Exactly, exactly. If you're you're working at at a rate where you are producing a lot of work, you'll be able to hide any, any, you know, not so great work that you've made before. And I think it's good to be vulnerable creatively. I think it's good to show folks, hey, I'm pretty good at this one thing, but I'm not so great at this other thing, but I'm going to learn. And in two weeks, you're going to see me significantly better than where I started. So lately, for the past several weeks, you've been on a sort of new adventure. And that's something that um, we've been working on tangentially together because we helped develop Metis, a product design user. uh, I'll let you describe it. (laughs) Oh, sure. So we have a uh, user experience and front-end development course at Metis um, that is focused on product design. Uh, So every student that joins our nine-week program walks out of the door knowing how to prototype and design a product from scratch. And you obviously have a lot built up about teaching people and about, (laughs) you know, your experience in the industry. Uh, The people doing the course are are largely – beginners in some respect, right? Um, especially when it comes to front-end development and user experience. What has it been like to see a group of people go through this experience? I think the first emotion I have about that is it, I'm impressed. I, I, it never ceases to amaze me how quickly people can pick up new skills and how determined people are to learn new things and to make themselves someone better than when they, when they walked in the door. But I think it's also very hard sometimes to see the stumbling blocks beginners run into unless you're working directly with somebody who is new at something. Even when I was starting my newsletter, I, sort of from my education background, knowing this is the case, I really ramped up my mentorship efforts. I, I would just reach out to young, promising women all over the place and started to talk to them to get a sense of who my audience was, to really understand what their problems were and what was on their mind as a young person trying to you know, move forward with their career or trying to figure out what their career should be. So similarly, in doing this program, I, when it comes to front-end development, for example, I start to notice all the pieces that I've forgotten were were very difficult starting out, all the sort of humps that people have to get over to stop thinking about their tools and start producing with their tools. Mm-hmm. I should have asked you this in the beginning, but uh, you mentioned it. You had Bouncy as a nickname. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I know you sort of go by house. 
instead of Allison House or Allison. Why is that? Why do you have these Uh, nicknames? Well, House sounds great when you walk into a room and people yell like, hey, House. (laughs) So (laughs) there's that part. But it's I think that people will just start calling you by your Twitter handle Mm -hmm. uh, in real life at at some point. And so many people were doing it that I just sort of transitioned over. I grew to like it. So when I started working at Dropbox, I started introducing myself as House. So you're House on Twitter. I'm House on Twitter at House. See that natural Twitter plug right built into... You're very natural. It works. (laughs) Well, House, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a joy to talk to you and learn about your past experience. And I look forward to all of your prolificness and what it will generate for the world in the future. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. You can find the notes for today's episode at our new URL, giantrobots.fm slash 121. Today's episode has been produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for joining us and see you later.